delighted to be joined by Dr. Julie Highfield and Dr. Dorothy Wade. What is the role of a psychologist within critical care? Well, I'd say it's extremely multifaceted. It all starts with the patients, very much thinking about while they're in intensive care, when they leave intensive care to go to the wards, when they leave the hospital to go home, in many cases may suffer after effects such as post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and depression. At the same time, um, a patient is always, you know, usually surrounded with their family. So we need to think about the role of the family and how we can best support the family. And then, of course, we never forget the importance of the staff and that our role as psychologists is, is to do with supporting the staff themselves and their well-being, and, but also helping to educate and train them in, in giving the best possible psychological support to patients. I agree with everything Dorothy says and strive to do those things in my job. Just to add to that is often the work we do for the patient is via the families and staff. So what psychologists might be thought of in traditionally sort of seeing a patient one-to-one in outpatients, that does work in ICU, but actually because of the nature of, of how patients are doing on ICU, often we're working for what's best for the patient via all the people around them, the way we kind of educate and support them and guide them in their work. And just to add one last thing, I think having a psychologist can almost be a bit of a symbolic role in the sense of it's a very traditionally biomedical environment where it's all about technology and medicine and keeping people alive and saving people's lives. And I think the psychologist's role is often to constantly bring back to the fact that this is a human being going through a pretty traumatic experience in most cases and trying to do what we can to humanise the unit and try to sort of mitigate the difficult experiences that patients are going through. Dorothy, for you and I, that's where I guess what we would drive for is for a psychologist to be integrated into the ICU, that it works better if they're around and they're there every day. They can come to team meetings, they can come to family meetings, etc., rather than that sort of sense of bringing the psychologist when we need them and don't think about them later kind of thing. You know, we have, have to kind of integrate as best we can and and there are models across the UK where psychologists are very much an embedded part of the team. I think we very much don't want to be a sort of nice person in a room that you can send (laughs) sad people to feel. (laughs) Send people to to fix yeah yeah Yeah. there is a role for that in some ways of having a space off the unit potentially but we provide that kind of inside outside approach so it's good to have a foot inside but also good to to be able to step outside and look at the unit as a whole and humanise is is the lovely word that Dorothy um, used there that is just a really nice way of thinking about that element that we try to bring. Thinking about the you know the physical environment because you know it can be a very harsh clinical looking place I think we've quite often been involved in projects to think about bringing art into critical care, music for the patient, reducing noise at night, quite often really obvious things that anyone could think of it's just not often thought about so even things like that, you know, it makes the intensive care unit, it's a much more pleasant environment for, or much more un, less unpleasant environment for patients. But I think for, for staff, it, it helps as well, you know, when, mm. when the place does look less clinical, when you can hear music or see artwork, and especially at night, if it's not so noisy, it has an impact on staff as well that perhaps isn't appreciated. Yeah, I'd agree. 
It's interesting how things like bringing in a patient's dog or, or kind of using pets as therapy, the staff love it just as much as the yeah. patient do. In fact, in some instances, I, I think it makes the staff stay much more than it can do the patients, <laughs> actually. So, um, so yeah, th- th- there is something about kind of just um, softening and warming the environment and taking away some of that kind of harsh clinical edge, even just in the way that you put a photo of a patient as they would look in their day-to-day life at the end of the bedside. That's as much for staff members as it is for the patients in fact sometimes more so because it really helps them to see beyond the diagnosis or the bed number and, and see the whole person. And we offering the families and just try to get some background information about the patient their likes their dislikes mm. and when they wake up we get we find out more from them about their wishes of how they'd like their day to be mm. you know when they'd like their wash you know probably not at six in the morning <laughs> um, <laughs> which it seems to be prescribed they should have it then we sort of have whiteboards and we write up that information. So when you come along, you immediately know the patient likes football and hates Radio 1. It helps people to start to communicate yeah. as more of a human being rather than, as you say, the person with pneumonia and sepsis. I think also so many conversations in ICU are very protocol-driven and very structured, but often finding out someone has a dog um, and likes football, it, it just adds the icebreakers and it takes away that sort of nervousness for staff and that uncertainty where they can kind of say, hi, Mr. Brown, did you hear on the radio or I heard on the radio that your football team won their match? I thought you'd be pleased to know. I'm your doctor for the day. I'm here to talk to you about this. And, and it just kind of gives that little bit of connection. And connection is a really, really important thing. You know, it, often in delirium, people can feel quite untrusting, um, if not to the point of, of paranoid of the staff. Um, so sometimes having a way to kind of make that connection can be a really good way of creating some intervention with that and building that trust. We probably are very bad at trying to re-establish that trust in, in somebody with delirium. I think we feel that, you know, studying delirium and learning about delirium and how staff manage delirium is a really key role for psychology and something that we're bringing that's not really been looked into very well before in in intensive care. Obviously, delirium is quite well thought about and managed in other areas like care of the elderly. But I think we haven't been that good at really thinking a lot about the experience of delirium for the patients. I think what we've learned from the research is that Delirium is probably one of the worst things that patients go through when they're in intensive care. There's been a lot of qualitative research where patients just describe, you know, absolute horror through delirium. You know, they they experience really frightening hallucinations and delusions, just horrible scenarios, you know, where people where they feel that the staff are torturing them or and then they feel they're travelling all over the world, you know, trying to escape some persecution. So a lot of the time that the people that we're dealing with, they are actually in that state. They have no idea where they are. They think they're in some kind of hell, actually. And they're in a state of you know, really heightened fear. And these are the experiences, you know, when you follow patients up, that, you know, even three months later in follow-up clinic, a lot of people are still talking about those experiences and those feed into the development of post-traumatic stress disorder because patients will often be having nightmares and flashbacks about those really horrific things um, that they experienced as part of delirium. I think we feel it's really important to try and highlight to all staff just exactly what patients are going through and to see if we can sort of step in to help support staff to talk to patients in a different way, support patients in a different way, 
reassure them. When you were talking about, say, the ward round coming round, I think for a lot of patients who delirious, that's a terrifying experience. Mm. And the last thing you want when you're like that is a crowd of people to come round and stare at you and start talking about you, talk about how frightened that was and they felt really crowded, you know, a big crowd mm. of 10 people coming around. Absolutely. And it can feed the paranoia because they will tend to sort of speak in hushed tones um, and kind of keep looking to the patient and looking back. And actually, if you can't quite hear, you will then start to fill in the gaps. Dorothy's right. I would say in follow-up clinic, I'm always surprised if someone doesn't refer back to their delirium, actually. And and there are different people integrate it better than others. Some some are absolutely left traumatized by it. Some of the lucky few are are fascinated by the fact that their brain can do that. So it's it's important to say that not all delirious patients go on Mm. to experience problems. But I think there is something in terms of that early intervention in delirium that is so key to psychology's role you know certainly there is something about you know the kind of emerging evidence about delirium subtypes and trying to mm. remove the potential source of the delirium you know things like sort of sepsis infection but i think there is also a lot to do with the interaction so i know patients i've worked with in the past where they've been able to express what's going on for them because i've asked the question about dreams and things they're seeing that don't feel quite right or feel uncomfortable. They've been able to reflect kind of further down the line and follow up that actually hearing that that was possible and hearing that that was something that was a kind of consequence of the treatment and the environment and that it would pass and that they weren't going mad or losing their mind was actually a really, really helpful thing to do. One of the best things I ever saw in a ward round in terms of the top tips for doctors, one of my favourite doctors on our unit, starts the ward round by going up to the patient, introducing himself, holding their hand and saying... I'm Dr. So-and-so, you're in hospital, you're in intensive care, and you are safe. It was just one of the loveliest and simplest interventions and something that all staff can do because delirium terrorises people and often the themes are around feeling under attack, feeling unsafe, feeling imprisoned in some way. Become aware through research that um, one of the factors in delirium is sedation. And I think... um, one of the roles of the psychologist is to constantly raise that topic in multidisciplinary meetings. Something I do a lot, I think I really annoy all my consulting colleagues because <laughs> I'm always questioning, you know, can't we now start to discontinue mm. some of these sedative drugs? And I'll go, look, they're on six different psychoactive substances at the moment. You know, this can't be helping. Can we start to reduce those? doesn't make me very popular, but I think, <laughs> I think it's quite an important thing to do for the patient big role of psychologists is to be the delirium broken record is to just keep reminding people one of the things I find in the ICU especially on bigger ICUs like Dorothy and I work on is you do get a throughput of staff and obviously with the, the kind of trainee doctors coming through there's throughput there and it's kind of sustaining the learning mm. and it feels like sometimes it's quite hard work for a psychologist because you're forever repeating yourself often I wonder if we stopped repeating ourselves would people then be forced to learn because we're not there to <laughs> remind them but at the same time I think as it's a role of almost advocacy for the patient and advocacy for the patient's perspective. I do think that, at least from a doctor perspective, we very much medicalise 
delirium yeah somebody is diagnosed as having delirium and they often get put onto a psychoactive drug as a way of trying to manage it I mean, it's worth pointing out that with all that research, there is no evidence whatsoever that antipsychotics prevent, treat, reduce yeah. the severity of or incidence of delirium. And actually in older patients, there's quite a lot of risk around using yeah. those drugs as well. We've talked an awful lot about what happens within, within the unit itself, but we've sort of touched upon the, the more outpatient setting of it. So would you mind talking about the the role of a psychologist in terms of rehabilitation and once a patient has, has made it out of the intensive care unit? I guess there's sort of early rehab within intensive care. Um, certainly psychologists often work with the physio team, the speech therapist to help someone engage in rehabilitation. Depending on you know the, the kind of psychologists across the UK are in lots of different positions in terms of their capacity, but ideally they might help on the ward as well in that kind of recovery, certainly helping the ward to understand what the patient has been through and helping that kind of almost that post-delirium phase and getting people up and moving and out of bed. We don't do the doing there, but we might help with the engagement and the confidence building and the management of worry and anxiety around that. And then in a sort of outpatient basis, something that NICE recommends and a, a lot of units have different variations of, but the, the ideal variation is a multidisciplinary follow-up clinic two to three months post-discharge home where we would review how a patient is doing, assess their psychological needs at that time, usually screen for things like mood, anxiety, trauma, post-traumatic stress. And a lot of the time, actually, a lot of the conversation is about sense making and putting together the story of what happened and giving the alternative narrative to the delirium memory often, which is something that's really nice for uh, a psychologist and, and either a nurse or, or a consultant to do hand in hand. And that's where ICU diaries can come in mm. really handy to give people something that they can take away as a sort of tangible kind of story of what happened um, some psychologists are really fortunate in that they have enough funding that they can then follow people on beyond that and offer a short course of psychological intervention, um, psychological therapies, trauma-focused therapies. Sometimes that's not possible. There, there isn't capacity for that, and we rely on referring into generic mental health services, which obviously they're there, but they, they don't always have the sort of same level of knowledge and expertise mm. of the ICU as we do. I think, yeah, as Judy was saying, the difficulty can be, so it's, it's great to have that one hour maybe where they can really explore the experience they had and we can also just check up on how their physical and psychological recovery is going. But quite often they just get started towards the end, they'll say this, you know, really strange things happened and they just start telling a story of the hallucinations and wanting to know why that happened and what did it mean about them. And you feel that you've got to kind of draw that quickly to a close because we've got the next patient coming in. Originally, I used to try to add them to community psychology services. And what we'd find is either they were still on the waiting list nine months later, or they'd ended up speaking to somebody who, not surprisingly, didn't really have any idea of what goes on in critical care, didn't really understand the experiences. Um, so anyway, we eventually concluded the best thing to do would be to set up our own sort of critical care psychology clinic so that we mm. can refer quickly from the follow-up clinic. 
either just to continue that process of exploring their experience and processing their memories, or we can carry out interventions such as EMDR, which is an eye movement therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. We know there's around about 280 ICUs across the UK, and the latest figures suggest about 53 have some kind of formalised psychology input, but the model varies. So for some, that's purely follow-up clinic. Um, For others, that's purely inpatient. Others do a bit of everything. So it really varies across the UK. I can only think of a handful of services that have follow-up to follow-up. So a lot of people have that one-off that Dorothy talked about, but are met with the frustration of, of seeing a need and not having the capacity to offer that ongoing intervention. From what you said in terms of the, the gaps that do appear, I can imagine that for a patient who's particularly traumatised, if they are in a service that after the brief intervention and follow-up clinic, if they're then waiting 9, 12 months for community services, I can imagine that someone who is who is traumatised as a result, I can imagine it's setting them back almost. Patients can feel quite abandoned mm. by the NHS in that way, and that, that can tap into all sorts of other problems for people and you know left untreated it it can just get worse and worse Um, I think that's the problem between primary and secondary mental health primary care is is thought of as more straightforward an ICU patient might be considered somewhat more complex and that wait for secondary mental health is a lot longer because patients take longer to to treat and and support Um, so that waiting list builds because the, those services are, are sadly underinvested in. What sort of role does a psychologist have with, to do with the staff of a critical care unit? Because I think traditionally it's thought of very much towards patients, but particularly with COVID, there's been a much bigger push towards well-being and psychological support for staff as well. Again, pre-COVID, the model is variable across the country because I think one of the tricky things is maintaining the sort of safety and the boundaries so if you're there in the bed space but you're supporting a member of staff who's looking Mm. after that patient more formally they might feel uncomfortable in terms of what you know about them but certainly mid-pandemic actually a lot of psychologists found it much harder to work in the bed space and we're supporting Mm. the staff so more people are doing it now so this because there's a number of levels um one is is the way in which we've already talked about which is supporting the staff to puzzle through what's going on with the patient and often supporting the patient's well-being and helping the staff to understand Mm. actually brings down that sense of of kind of helplessness and infuriation and, and confusion in staff so that's hugely helpful in their well-being at work And certainly in terms of the way that we would kind of teach and educate staff about these things, both at bedside and more formally, can be helpful. But then there is much more specific to staff well-being, which is around kind of offering reflective spaces um, that we sometimes call reflective rounds, where we get together to kind of talk about the impact of the work and either through themes or particular cases, particular um, patients that have been through that have been quite upsetting um, or quite thought-provoking for us and helping and enabling that space to come together. Sometimes sort of skills to manage stress kind of sessions. Some staff find those quite helpful, kind of team work and team days and team facilitation and how we look after each other is helpful. 
certainly, you know, I'm a great believer that staff experience comes from the way in which they're kind of looked after by their kind of leads and managers. So certainly for me, trying to kind of help and support them in their understanding of staff and getting the best out of staff and looking out of them is great as well. And in some services, it's internal, some services, it's external, but providing that one-to-one direct support for staff. So helping them puzzle through work-related stress and kind of helping them make sense of what they've been through, often work-related trauma. Mm. Again, trauma is a big part of our role, making sense of that and kind of working through that and sometimes signposting onto mental health services or occupational health services if needed. This kind of work also goes back to, I think, what we were talking about before, about humanising the ICU. And I think in this case, it's we can play a role in helping to humanise the actual sort of work culture of the ICU. Because I would say that traditionally, the work culture in ICU was maybe quite harsh, hierarchical. We also did some surveys about staff and there was a lot of, you know, fear of being blamed, fear of making a mistake and being blamed for it. So I think what we've really tried to do is just sort of make it okay for people to talk about Mm. how they feel at work, for everyone to be able to open up about how work makes us feel. And this affects everyone. So I think it's been very much about helping people at all levels. You know, it's great also if senior people will talk about that and show some vulnerability. So it's just been a very slow, gradual process um, in our unit and others, I'm sure, too of just getting people to be able to speak up and to open up. That fear of blame, what also goes alongside it is that fear of vulnerability as well. And in that kind of culture, well done, Dorothy, for naming the culture, that very man up kind of culture that that we see in ICU is is like the culture we do see in, in the NHS, but plus, 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 it's really exaggerated in the ICU. Um, and I, I think often staff will feel like they're failing if they're affected by the work and actually you can't walk in the rain without an umbrella and not expect to get wet really and I I think it's very old-fashioned culture to expect people to be fine with what they do and I, I think what happens in terms of burnout is people learn maladaptive ways of being fine and appearing to be well and I think sometimes people try to really heavily disconnect from the work to manage it because they're expected to to not kind of connect with the patient's story and you know things like the stuff we were talking about earlier like bringing in a photo of the patients over the years some staff have said I prefer you not to do that because I prefer not to think about the patient as a person because that will cause me to burn out And actually, what's interesting is there's a small but growing evidence that actually the more we can carefully emotionally connect Mm. to the, the patient's wider story, the less likely we are to burn out. 